Thank you, Dave. Thank you, church, for praying for our family. Um, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Acts. This morning we'll be in Acts chapter 7, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, I was preaching this morning at the Royalton Village Church, and I was reminded that it was not cold here last week. They didn't have heat either this morning, and it was a good 38 degrees. As I was reading some scripture, you could see my breath. So it wasn't that cold here last week. We'll be in Acts chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 8. And would you mind standing for the reading of the Word of God? Actually, Acts 6, verse 8. Sorry about that. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and of the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth who will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us and gazing at him. All who sat in the council saw that his face was like a face of an angel. And the high priest said, are these things so? Father, we thank you for this word. God, we thank you for uh, bringing us together this morning that we might see an example of bearing witness of who you are and what you've done to a lost and dying world around us. God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to respond to your gospel this morning. God, would you transform us and, and give us encouragement to uh, fight our good fight of faith as we step into a new year, that we would take one more step each day Towards finishing our race well, having our eyes fixed upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. You can keep your finger there. We're going to keep going through the book of Acts in Acts chapter 7 this morning. Uh, but this passage is uh, God teeing up for them what Jesus had called them to do in Acts chapter 1. In verse 8, you're probably familiar with that passage at this point where Jesus said to his apostles that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And as we start out a new year tomorrow, if you're not familiar with it, tomorrow is a new year, we're going to be moving into what I hope and pray is a year where we as a church will engage the community around us in more intentional and more effective evangelism. 
And I think this morning, Stephen, one of these newly appointed deacons of the church, gives us a great example to follow, but most importantly, a great God to trust. So opponents of God's word, they have brought up this trial. They're lying. They're instigating a mob. They're instigating a false witness about Stephen and what he was doing and what he was saying. But these false witnesses, they can't thwart what God is doing here. And God is going to use Stephen through the voice and the question of the high priest to share the gospel. And so as God's people are faithful, God is working in the midst of them. One of these newly appointed deacons, he takes center stage here and we should see that it is God who is with him. When when we see in the scripture that his face shone, as it says, like the face of an angel, we are to see that he has been in God's presence, that God is in the midst of what is going on here as his face is aglow. And so today for the rest of our time, we're going to have a sermon about a sermon. We don't need to all preach a sermon, but we are all friends called to preach the gospel. And there are three things that I'd like for Stephen's sermon to show us how we can share the gospel ourselves. God's grace, God's judgment, and God's salvation. Look at verse two in chapter seven. We'll start with God's grace. This is Stephen's response. He said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father, Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed from him there into this land in which they were now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him a covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all over his household. And there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family because, or became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt and he died. He and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor 
in Shechem. We'll stop right there. We'll see that Stephen, he knows his audience. He knows that he is speaking to the Jewish leaders of his day. And so he starts with the first of the patriarchs of the people of Israel in Abraham. Abraham was no holy man at that time, but God chose him to leave his home, to go to another land, to leave his foreign gods. Abraham's people were known for worshiping the moon, to worship the true God, to leave his idols, to worship the God of the Bible. Why? Because God had grace on Abraham. God called Abraham to himself. And so in this world, there's two types of people. There's those who don't worship God, and there's those who do. You, you can't be in kind of a middle ground, in a gray area. There's, there's two types of people in the world. At one point, all of us belong to the ones that don't worship God in that camp when we were born. But after our birth, that when we worship the other gods, God gave some of us grace to believe the gospel so that we could worship the God of the Bible ourselves. And the Bible calls worshiping anything other than God or people or stuff or even ourselves idolatry. And because of idolatry, we should face the consequences of the wrath of God. So should Abraham. But God had grace on him. And so Stephen uses Abraham as an example of God's grace, where God says, you are worshiping other gods, but I'm going to choose you out of all the people in all the world to be a person who would have faith in me to be a blessing to the nations. And Abraham followed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness as he had faith in God. So Abraham had sons and he had great-grandsons and those great-grandsons sold one of their brothers into slavery because they were jealous. They were worshiping something other than God and so they sold their brother off and that was Joseph. But by God's grace, God would use Joseph in Egypt to preserve the people of God, where God's people were hungry. There was a famine in the land, and God had grace by preserving and sending Joseph in advance to Egypt to preserve a people. Not because they were good brothers. It was a good family. Remember, they sold their brother to slavery. But God's grace to people who don't follow him provides life, preserves a people. It preserves the seed of the woman that we talked about during Christmas for you and for me today. And so as we talk about God's grace, we can then follow the example of Stephen as we share the gospel with other people. Because friends, we need a savior as well. We need God's grace as well. And so our evangelism doesn't start with us. Because who initiated that relationship? Was it Abraham or was it God? It was God. God started the relationship with Abraham because God had grace. And so when we are engaging the world around us, 
Let's ask God, God, would you give this person that I'm going to talk to or would you bring somebody into my path who I will talk to so that I can share the gospel with them? God, would you do a work in this person's life? We just saw that this early church was devoted to prayer in this last last section. And so we can ask God, God, would you help give this person grace? When we realize that we were created to be in communion with God, to worship Him, we have worshiped something other than God, the most loving thing for us to do for people who don't worship God is to call them to worship God. To call them to respond to God's grace in their life. Where God in His grace, He provides the means of worship and the work and the person of His Son which we'll get to shortly. And friends, when our evangelism starts with God's grace, when it starts with God, I got news for you. You can't mess it up. We can't mess up what God can do in someone else. We can say a false gospel, but when we communicate the true gospel, we can't mess up what God can do in and through that person's heart to give them the grace to believe the gospel. All we have to do is to open our mouths to share the gospel, which we'll get to shortly, and have confidence that that's the means by which God can save souls. We can also consider that our evangelism starts with God, but it also gives us dependence on Him. We all have needs, right? We all have things that we struggle in, right? We all have bills to pay, health to maintain. God isn't just good at providing shelter and our resources, a home for us to live in or clothing for our back. He can provide what we truly and eternally need and we can share that as well as the basic necessities of life that we have. That's why we have a benevolence fund. But a benevolence fund is oftentimes a means for us to have conversations with people. Like, yes, we can give you a gift card. We can fill up your tank of oil. We can give you a cord of wood. But hey, we have better news for you than just a warm home this winter. Friends, everyone's greatest need is the gospel. We don't need to be cheesy. You need heating oil? Well, I have something that'll heat you even more than the oil in your furnace. But as we know of needs that people have, we can pray for God's grace to provide for them what they truly need. Eternal provision and salvation from their sins because God cares about our worship he doesn't provide earthly needs so that we would worship those earthly needs and the earthly things that we have he provides what we need so that we would worship the giver of those gifts God's grace is a great starting point in our evangelism that's what Stephen starts with And so you can share, like Abraham, I was far off from God myself, but because of the gift of Jesus and the grace of God in my life, God has brought me into close relationship with him by the grace of God, not because of something I've done. It's grace, it's good news, because there's bad news, and that's when Stephen gets to his second point, that 
we see in Stephen's sermon, not only does God provide grace, but he provides revelation of his judgment. Look at verse 17. And listen to the language of judgment throughout this section where Moses becomes the example of seeing the difference between what's right and what's wrong. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brother would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in the flame of a fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to the look, there came a voice of the Lord. I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now I will come and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in a bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him and thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned. To Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him, and made a calf in those days, and offered sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God Rephim and images that you made to worship and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. 
So in transitioning from Abraham to Moses, we see that God is the holy and righteous judge and he uses Moses to show God's people right and wrong, holy and unrighteousness. For Moses was a good ruler, but God is a perfect, good, holy, righteous ruler. In the world around us, not so much, right? But God's grace is a response to not giving God's people what they rightly deserve as consequence for their sins. Moses is an example who judges between right and wrong, right? He stood up for the Israelite man who was being persecuted by the Egyptian. He says that he is the redeemer, but we see that he points to a greater redeemer, a promised prophet who would be the perfect judge in verse 37. We know him as Jesus. The sinner has two responses to idolatry. To turn to God or to turn to sin. As Stephen says in verse 42, that God hands the sinner over to their sin as a form of judgment. Well, we know Moses, right? He's known for the law. He wrote the first five books of the law. As we get into our Bible reading plans every year or so, we get to Leviticus and we slow down a little bit. But that's not for us to just put our Bibles away and pick them up the following January. The purpose of the law is for us to see that we are unrighteous, that we need a Savior, that we can't keep all the rules without God's gracious hand helping us. The world is broken. I probably don't need to tell you that. But explained by the law, explained by the world of suffering all around us, we see good and evil. We see a need for a savior. When things like floods happen every three days around here, we see things are broken. When we see that heaters don't work, or as I got a couple text messages this morning, that people are sick, or when we lose family members or loved ones, the world is broken. The world is affected by the fall. And when faced with sin, God also hands us over to our sin to see that it is fleeting, to see that it will never provide what we truly need. The temporal pleasures are not the lasting pleasure that God really wants for us in worship of him. And friends, we don't minimize sin. But understanding sin has its consequences. We can call people to trust in God's grace. When folks suffer, we call them towards God's grace. That's the only thing that's really gonna comfort them. This is no fire and brimstone sermon from Stephen here. He's speaking truth. But he's rather saying, the world is broken. You can't fix it on your own. You can't fix yourself on your own. The reason why we call, and the Bible calls, and most importantly, good news, the gospel, is because there's bad news. And Stephen addresses 
the bad news and the judgment to come as a consequence of sin with God's grace. He also addresses it with his judgment. But we'll see as Stephen finishes his sermon, he finishes it with, his, with God's salvation. Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what kind of place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. And so we see Stephen pick out a few key characters in the history of Israel. He starts with Joshua, whose name means the Lord saves. It's the Hebrew name for the name of Jesus. We see David, the promised king, who was promised to have a continual heir on the throne, who would then ultimately deliver God's people from their sin. You see David's son Solomon, who would build a house for God's people to allow God to dwell again with his people as separated from them after the fall. And all of this builds upon an eternal restoration of communion with God as we see a heavenly mindset that the earth is where, I'm sorry, where heaven is where the Lord dwells. Where we already saw at the beginning of this sermon that Stephen's face was shining as if he was in God's physical presence. But Stephen directs our gaze towards heaven towards the life that is to come. But we can't get there on our own. We need that white righteous one. We need the one who provides salvation. We need the one who provides what we desperately need. And for generation after generation after generation, God's people have been longing for the promised one himself. And Stephen puts an exclamation park. He pounds his fist at the end of his sermon and he shouts at those who are hearing, you stiff-necked, hard-hearted, uncircumcised Jewish leaders resisting the Holy Spirit. These are the Jews chosen by God. He is not holding back and calling them to repentance. What he wants them to do is they, he wants them to see their need for salvation. And for thousands of years, they have missed it. Generation after generation, Israel hated God's prophets, so they killed them. 
Stephen, words are good news to sinners who are lost and in desperate need of salvation through the death, so that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They didn't get it. They didn't want it. When he was asked for, by the high priest for an answer, he called the high priest and all those who were listening to repentance. God's grace through judgment was meant to lead them to see their need for salvation through belief in Jesus and repentance from their sins. His evangelism is fairly simple. It's a long sermon, but it's fairly simple. That sin leads to judgment, but salvation is available by God's grace for those who would believe the gospel and repent. And even the religious leaders need to hear that as much as anybody else. And so evangelism, friends, is a response to God's grace in our own life. It is a form of our worship and submission to God ourselves. And to share the gospel with others in humility, but also in confidence, is to invite others away from their idolatry away from the consequences of their sin, to worship the God of the Bible, to follow and receive the eternal life, the life that we were created to live. Do you want to create opportunities for evangelism? I got a couple simple ways to do it. When you're wrong, admit you're wrong. I'm sure you'll get a question, what's going on here? You'll look a little different than the world around you, right? When you offend somebody, apologize. The world doesn't like to do that. When you need forgiveness, you can ask for it. Because of what God has done for you, we can come towards others in humility. Because God has been patient and kind and merciful to us, we can be patient and kind and merciful to other people in this church and also those outside of this church not only because it's right, but because it can give us an opportunity to share the gospel with people. Stephen's example, he focused on God's grace, his judgment, and his salvation. Next year, church, let's put some of this into practice. But look at verse 54. Look what happens. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of his Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their dark garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution, and those arose, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I'd be the first to admit I would love this church to grow. 
but we see that it might not always be pleasurable. Friends, don't be shocked that the world will hate the message of the gospel. It has for thousands of years. But in the midst of the backlash of proclaiming the gospel, Stephen remained faithful to his death. As the mob took over, Jesus' warning that he gave to his disciples in John 16 probably gave him confidence when Jesus said, indeed, the hour is coming that whoever kills you will think he's offering sacrifice to God and service to God. Stephen personally followed his Savior's footsteps, preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And look at Stephen's word. He says at the end, Lord, receive my spirit, where his Savior said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen said, Lord, do not hold the sin against them, echoing Jesus' words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Both of those quotes come from Luke's gospel, who's writing the book of Acts. Luke wants us to see that following Jesus means following him to our own cross, regardless of the cross. Like that song we sang this morning, A Mighty Fortress, Let Goods and Kindreds Go, This Mortal Life, also, the body they may kill, God's word abideth still. Stephen's faithfulness didn't result in a big revival in Jerusalem. The church scattered towards the ends of the earth. There was no strategic plan. Okay, we're gonna set up in Jerusalem. We're going to have some really good worship music. We're going to then have VBS, okay? And then we're going to grow the church and we're going to go to Samaria. And we're going to go prayer walk the towns and then God's going to grow the church again and then we're going to go on the next city. No. They were faithful in Jerusalem and one of their key leaders died. It's the next session of our elder training of figuring out who wants to volunteer for that one. God was faithful to his mission. God said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. And it was significant persecution that drove the church out of Jerusalem, that drove the church out of Samaria, that drove the church to the ends of the earth. And so church, as we engage in evangelism this year, I think there's three things I wanna remind you of. As you set out tomorrow, in a new year, quickly. Stephen was a man of scripture, first and foremost. When he was asked for a response, if you look at his sermon, it is scripture passage after scripture passage after scripture passage and an application of that passage to those who are hearing. Each Sunday, we open up the Bible here. We explain what is going on in here. We help to apply it to your life, to prepare you to walk out our doors for another six and a half days until you come back and join us again, to prepare you to go live the Christian life in a hostile world around you between Sundays. And so allow your time here on Sundays to equip you for the work of ministry between Sundays and foster for yourself your own personal study in the scriptures each and every day. We must know the Bible, church. 
Evangelism isn't just God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Evangelism, let's pray a prayer together. Evangelism, you're a sinner. You need a savior because God has wrath towards sinners, but God has grace on those who believe the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for you as revealed in the scriptures. It's a new year tomorrow. It's a great time, great opportunity to jump in our Bible reading plan. We decided to do a two-year Bible reading plan, so it doesn't matter when you jump in on the plan. We have some plans in the back. Tomorrow, flip the page. Year two starts tomorrow. Allow Stephen's example to give you confidence. As a man of scripture, confident to speak scripture, trusting God with the results in your evangelism. And second, because of what God had done in Stephen's own heart, the confidence that he had in the scripture, he was ready. If you live a certain way, attuned to the things of the world around you, conversations that you have, you can respond with a defense of the gospel and what he has done for you, what he's done for others, especially when we're asked. An example, this week we, me and some of our leaders, we met with our roofer. If you didn't notice, it's still not done. It's taken a lot longer than we were expecting, right? But it's not helpful to tell the guy, we told you so. He was remorseful. He asked for more grace. He asked for some patience. This is a great opportunity, especially in light of Advent that we've just been studying, to say, you know what, Kevin? God has been so merciful to us. He has been so patient with us. He has been so good to us. Yeah, we can be patient with you. And you need some extra money right now because you don't have any firewood stacked up, we're gonna buy you a quart of wood because we wanna be abundantly generous to you because God has been abundantly generous to us. So we can be patient because God's been patient. Probably don't need to tell you, life isn't a straight path. But let's be Bible people. Let's be ready to share the gospel. And third, let's be faithful. And so as we share the gospel, it's the means of salvation for the lost. It always has been. And friends, it might not look like the church is winning sometimes, but God is winning. Even if we don't win, our role is faithfulness. Stephen's what people often call a martyr, right? Do you know what martyr in the Greek word translated as English is? Witness. It shows up all the time in Acts. In Acts 1.8, you will be my martyr in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Jews brought false martyrs to the trial of Stephen. It was the martyrs that laid their garments down at the feet of Saul. If given the option, I think all of us would choose, can I just be the one who talks and not the one who dies? But whatever the result, church, our role is faithfulness. And we trust God with fruitfulness. I'll give you an example of this too. You're probably familiar with Mid-Vermont Christian School. 
they stood up for what the Bible calls right and wrong. And they were kicked out of being able to participate in state-sponsored sports and other activities. But many of those kids that were on some of those sports teams at the school have now gone to the schools in their local communities and joined those sports teams. And now they get to interact with other kids on those sports teams. The parents get to rub shoulders with other parents in the bleachers, in those stadiums, in those gyms. Our inconveniences, church, could be God's means of grace to provide a gospel witness to those who are lost around us because salvation comes from hearing the gospel. How did those Jews respond, right? They covered their ear. They didn't want to hear it. But that doesn't mean we don't keep sharing it. Where we get to practice sharing the gospel with each other here in a safe place, like nobody's throwing anything at me today. Nobody's rushing at me to make me be quiet. Please don't do that. But we practice here in a safe place with each other so that we can be equipped to go to a hostile world around us, in your workplace, in your schools, where you live with your neighbors. Because God will always be with us. And it's worth it to obey the Lord, to trust him, to do this together. And tomorrow's a new year. And so let's give ourselves to be a people who follows Stephen's example and proclaiming God's grace, his judgment, and also his salvation as Bible people, as ready people, but also as faithful people, trusting God for whatever results would please him. That's the strategic plan of the church. It's not always what we would come up with a strategic plan, but that's what God's been doing for 2,000 years. And that's my hope and prayer for us as we step into a new year tomorrow, that we would be a more evangelistic, gracious, loving church, confident that the gospel proclamation that comes out of our mouth would transform the community we live in. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy in our life for being so patient with us that we might repent, for being kind to us that we might repent, for being merciful to us so that we could in turn respond with mercy. God, would you use us as a church in the coming year especially to be transformed ourselves by your abundant love as given by your son who came to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death, to rise from the grave and give us a life we can never attain otherwise. And God, would, because of what you've done in our hearts, would you use us to share the abundant mercy available for those who are lost and dying around us to provide them what they truly need. Would you give them the grace to believe when we open our mouth and the 
mumbling and stumbling that we all do when we speak to use our words to bring people to faith and repentance in you. Not for us, that we look great or as our church would grow, but so that you would get the glory that you deserve by people created in your image. And we just thank you that we get to do this together, that we get to encourage one another, that we get to come alongside each other. How would you help us to do that faithfully in the year to come? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.